Hey, everyone, you're tuning into the Fly Fidelity podcast. Uh, my name is Alaska. If you know me at all, you know me from some music I made uh, and a podcast that I host called Call Out Culture. Uh, I just dropped a new record with my friend Jason Griff called Human Zoo. It's out now. I think it's pretty good. We're going to talk about it for a while. And um, you could get it at insubordinate.com. Uh, and, you know, we got some some digital, some physical copies. And, you know, I hope if you like what you hear, you give it a check and you, you listen to it. First, First I say, say, what we're we going to do. do. Then, then you, you say, I don't know. What do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> Fly Fidelity, credible content for incredible times. Welcome to episode 31, featuring special guest Alaska. On this episode, we talk about his brand new album, produced by Jason Griff, Human Sue. We also talk about his earlier days and come up with Def Jux and Atom's family, and so much more on this episode. Enjoy the conversation. Can you talk about the inspiration behind the narrative you're tapping into with Human Zoo? This is an album dominated by themes of technology and, of course, disconnect, alienation, dysfunction and isolation. Was there a triggering moment that spearheaded a starting point going into this project for you? Uh, I don't know if there was necessarily a trigger moment. I think it was just more of a reflection of the times when I was writing it. Um, you know, like I've kind of always been obsessed with like disconnection. Um, you know, whether it's like disconnection from society, disconnection from time, disconnection from other people. Um, and I think, you know, we're living in a very disconnected world right now, even though we're like super connected. Um, and then, you know, we're in the middle of the COVID epidemic. So everybody's really isolated and on their own and communicating through these portals that make it very difficult to have like real conversation. And, you know, everybody just was kind of like angry and and salty with one another and just wanting to fight like it just feels like the ways that we we use technology to communicate with each other we're just like at each other's throats um but we're also like watching each other to do it like it's our it's our entertainment at this point it feels like everything you've ever done prior to this has been a precursor and almost a, an accumulation of what we hear with this body of work. Would you say everything you've done has been leading up to this moment and you making this commentary with this project? You've always been invested in what you're talking about on this project, but this is a elevated field for you talking about this stuff, isn't it? I would say everything post like Hangar 18, like Hangar 18 wasn't really on that vibe, but that was because it was you know, it was a group project and there was two different MCs. So we had to find a common ground between us on what we wanted to talk about. But like when it's just me, right. these are like the things I like to talk about. So, you know, I think, you know, maybe like the first post hangar 18 record with, was like, a, it was called the crack epidemic with my boy Kojo. That was a little bit different. Cause that was more dealing with like the wreckage of a scene and 
a group and a label, but everything from like words hurt on has been sort of in this, this vein. What have you learned making this album about what it means to be a human in a time of crisis versus what it means to be an artist? Can you talk about that duality and navigating that duality in this weird moment? Um, I, mean, I, I think we have a tendency to like look for the worst possible things. Um, we want to see the world is a lot darker than it is. I'm actually like relatively optimistic, um, you know, because when you're with, when you're within your community and around the people you know and you love, like there's just people have so much care for one another and they want to make sure one another is is doing well. It's just when we sort of try to like shoehorn other people into our way of thinking and our worlds that that's where conflict starts. And and I think, you know in this current climate, we're very much insular in like our own little worlds and everything else we see is like this world that we want to pop our head into and tell them how to be. It's almost like, you know, that came The Sims. Mm. It's kind of like that a little bit. Like we're just like looking out into this world that doesn't connect to us. So we, we want to force ourselves onto that world. I think we do that a lot. Yeah, you living in a hell that you created. You hoped it would be different, but it isn't cause you made it. Yeah. for me personally anyway it's like i i channel my anxiety through mm. my music when i'm making music like it's sort of like the way i find calm so i think i package all of those things and all those feelings of uncertainty and fear and frustration into my music um so that's that's where that goes so that when i'm just tim in my regular life i'm not like this ball of anxiety that's freaking out all the time and mad all the time we we all have our forms of projection where we do that and you know, that, that's part of the, the fact that we live in this, like, fake pseudo-social world. Yeah. That is, like, the, the sort of view of the world that we get that's a very not real view of the world. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I was about to ask how you would describe your relationship with social media and how it's influenced the narrative for this project. It comes up a lot, doesn't it, social media? Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, I think, like a lot of people... Um, I often forget that it's an algorithm um, that is based solely on the things that you engage with. So they find the things that you like to engage with and they feed it to you more and more. Um, so, you know, when things are nervous, when there's, there's panic going on or there's like a crisis like COVID or, right. you know, there's whatever, it could be a hurricane or whatever it is. Like you're, you're kind of like focusing on those things and you're clicking on those. Some kind of hysteria, right? Yeah. So, and, and it, it keeps feeding it to you. So they're like, Oh, that's what you want. I'm going to give you more of that and more of that. So in generally I try to curate it. So it's like, it's just people talking about rap and then like a football team that I like, <laughs> that's what I try to curate it as. But you know, during certain times it's like you get, you're trying to find news and find information. So like you're kind of like injected with this sense of panic, but um, yeah, it's like, like a lot of people, I forget that it, it's not a real world. Um, 
you know, like even to the point where it's like looking at artists, like there's suddenly like an artist all over my feet. I'm like, wow, that artist is huge. And it's just because like I clicked on a couple of links that they had <laughs> and now they're, you know, every single piece of engagement about them is there. And then I look, I'm like, Oh, you only got like 12 fans. <laughs> you know? So it's like this, this weird, weird false world that we're living in. Yeah. Were there times where writing this album felt heavy to carry, you know, with the weight of every other apocalypse happening simultaneously across the world? Oddly it didn't. Um, like I said, because it, it's almost like a therapeutic form. It, it, yeah. It kind of was a sense of relief. Like the only time that was really heavy was like the ode to Scorsese. That was like right after, like the day after uh, Scorsese passed. Right. So, you know, there was like sort of all of the the sadness about that that just sort of came out. So that was the only time it was really heavy. Like it was just, you know, I had to get this out. Um, but for the most part, like when I'm writing, it's just to sort of quell that anxiety. So it, it's a relief, if anything, you know, like there, it's not, it's not something that weighs heavy on me when I'm doing it. How much creativity have you found in, you know, not just unpacking dystopia as a way to experience future worlds, but also as a way to adjust the lens of people listening? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of creativity in there. Um, but I, I don't think it's like a special creativity. I think it's something anybody can do if they take the time to look at it. Right. Um, you know, the, the thing that I, I like to do when I'm writing at least is, um, you know, I like to sort of focus on, like, I've always been a bit contrarian. So like, if everybody, you know, is like saying one thing, like I tend to think it's wrong. <laughs> so I want to like look at the, the different point of view for that. Cause it, it creates, you know, you start, you start to see the flaws in your own thinking when you do that way. So I think like it allows you to sort of think in a bigger way than you would if you're just following a pack. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's just, it's more of like creative thinking that happens with that. But there's a real social sympathy towards these horrors and, and you know, absurdities of today in these songs. Are you happy with how it's yeah. being received and the way people are digesting these songs? Yeah, so far I am. Um, you know, I, I, I always just, you know, if people like it, I'm happy with that. Um, one of the things I learned when I was in Hangar 18, like I made a record, uh, well, we made a record that was like, it was geared towards appealing to other people. Uh, and it ended up being like kind of a flop and it just wasn't a very good record. Um, so I, after that, I stopped caring. Like I just make music for myself. And if I like it, I don't really care what anybody else thinks. If other people like it, it's cool. But, you know, I, I sort of try to make a record that's like the record I want to hear. And so I, I don't, I don't really think much of what other people are thinking about it. If they do like it, you know, obviously I'm sort of honored and humbled by that. But um, it's not, not really what goes into the process of writing. It's weird ruling a kingdom built on regret. It's the tyranny of a petty king. Yeah. Yeah. There's a loneliness and timelessness. I make these songs because how else will I know why I exist? If no man is an island, then why am I a nihilist? I guess I'm in denial on some infantile child shit. Every round's a tribal Tribalism style I do my own secret asylum that the silence consumes. The mileage tends to vary with these marionette strings. It's seep into my memory for more than my bed springs. Yeah, they got me living in her. Hearing you expand your style and bend and break so many rules as subversively as you have over your evolution, how do you think you've managed to elevate those rules on your own terms with this album and, and bend these rules you've always done? I think in the beginning, like the one thing we were always trying to do is we we're just trying to be like 
the wildest style possible where it was like forcing syllables into everything and, you know, really just sort of trying to be abstract for the sake of being abstract. Um, but when we were doing that, like, you know, you sort of learn techniques, you learn styles. Um, and after like Hangar 18 broke up and like Adam stopped really being a thing, like I started focusing more on what I wanted to say. Um, and I think this, at this album, I like really was able to marry those two things together in a really strong way, which I hadn't really been able to do in the past as well as I want to. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, there, that was a good aspect of it. You know, I think like one of the things like, you know, for the first half of my career, I had always been in a group. So I was a group artist. Right. Um, and since then I've been like kind of figuring out who I am as a solo artist. And I think with this record, I kind of found that. Another human beings It's our own self-loathing here to manifest I'm just trying to tell it like it is Like I was Manny Fresh yes. It's a manifest destiny I don't like it when people stand next to me It's not about the taste It's a texture thing So ask yourself, motherfucker, what set you claim? Make the slow gains Do the knowledge card Give a college try Throw a Molotov Making dollars I'm making too much sense Makes me want to holler Trap the perfect tense What have you learned about structure and bending rules Working with Jason Griff? Um... I mean, working with Griff, like, I, you know, I think I've, I've learned about structure. Like, I had to learn about structure because we didn't have that in the beginning. So I learned about being creative in the beginning, but I didn't really learn, like, to me, like, true creative creativity is when you're set within boundaries and then being able to be creative in there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think both Jason and I have that approach. The, the one thing I really learned with Griff was just, like, that I need to work on hooks because, like, I would do songs. It's like, where's the hook? And I'm like, oh, okay, I thought that was a good hook. Um, so it's, you know, it's just sort of always being open to learning new things and and taking on advice from people that you're working with, you know, as long as it's constructive criticism. Um, so I think, you know, with the verses, I was able to just sort of like throw all the flair I wanted to in it um, while still getting the the messages across that I wanted to. But when, when Jason was like, slow down on the hooks, like pay attention to this and do that. Like I was really able to like sort of tighten things up a lot more on that front. Could you remember the first track you guys did for this project? Yeah, I think the first one that we did was, well, we did four like all at the same time. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I don't really remember which one was first, but it was um, Juice, um, Poison Pill, um, Petty King, and what was the third, the fourth one? Um, oh, Tyranny, Evil Men. So they were all like done within a week. Um, so they, they kind of set the foundation for things. Um, but, but I think that happens a lot when you're working on a project. Like when I was doing the record with Zilla Rock, it was the same thing. Like you sent me a bunch of beats and like got like four or five songs done in a week. And then, you know, you spend the next year doing the next eight songs. You get like a very big creative burst in the beginning. And then, you know, you sort of drain everything right away. Like, boom, everything you had is, is out there now. And now you have to fill up again and, and find the new things that you want to talk about. 
There's rules to the human zoo, at least that's how I understand it. Everybody's down, I can't fodder or the son of man. Holly in the hierarchies, high rises and heart disease. You wanna be free, then you need to buy private property. Hey, yo, there's rules to the human zoo, you need to feel complete. It goes wake, work, eat, sleep, TV, and repeat. Someone's always watching, and all politics are local. What was the energy behind rules to the human zoo? I think it was just sort of a culmination of a lot of the stuff that we were talking on the album. Like, I just wanted to, like, I had this idea, like, where I wanted to almost set it off, like, like, it's almost like a life plan. Like, this is the things you need to do if you want to be successful, kind of. Um, like, I had done a song um, on the, one of the work records. Um, I'm trying to remember the title of it, but it was like, it was similar to that, where it was like laying out sort of all these guidelines that you should do, but it was done more from a humorous approach. Um, so like this one, I just wanted to like, take it from like this sort of perspective of that record. Like, you know, almost like, like it was a, um, like it, it was like a infomercial about like what you should do if you want to like live a good life. Right. And it was in response to like everything that you see in like social media um, you know, sort of all these people like constantly telling you like, this is what you need to do. You need to stop doing this. And it was more my response to that. Like right. the one on words hurt was called worst life coach. And it was just like sort of a humorous take on like how to be a happy and successful person. And this was more like a response to everybody that's like, you know, you need to like not pay your rent and do this and do that. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's going to come back and haunt you in a couple of years. Um, so that was more of my response to that. And I, I think it kind of tied everything together with the record as well. Absolutely. And what about the track Reboot, of course, which features Fatboy Sharif? How does that one come about? That one, um, I, I spoke with Sharif like last summer about doing a track. Like I had I'd heard a couple of his songs in his, his first record. I was really into it. We became friendly. And um, I was just sort of like lining up the ideas of people I wanted to work with for the record. So I reached out to him and the, the original concept was, it was, um, there's like a, a hook that wasn't very good, but it was like, basically like kind of addressing like environmentalism where it's like the world's not going to end. We are, but the world's not. So it was like kind of taking that approach of like, almost like when you look at like a Battlestar Galactica where it's like the world that we knew it ended, but it always like finds ways to regenerate itself. It was basically like, um, there's this George Carlin bit a while back about like plastic and how arrogant like we are about thinking like we're saving the world by not having plastic bags or plastic straws, like how we're heroes and we're special. And it's like, well, what if the world just made us to get plastic? Like the world's always going to be fine. We're just a, we're just like a second in the world's timeline. And, you know, sort of like sort of building on that idea. So what does the future of social media look like for you in, in, in your cautiously optimistic opinion? Like, what, what do you see that looking like in five years' time, given the state it's um, in right now? I mean, my hope is that... Could it be restored have, to what it was? Yeah, I think... It, well, I, I don't know. I don't think it will ever be restored to what it was, but I think it can be better. Right. I think you're going to have, like, generations that have had it in their lives the whole time and sort of... Like the way we had TV, like people used to be scared of TV or, um, you know, people used to be scared of rap music or heavy metal music. Like there's always like panics that come on. I think to an extent we're having a bit of a panic with it. Um, but, you know, I think I think we're just going to learn how to incorporate it into our world in a way that's actually functional, um, you know, because 
the reality of it is we bring all of this stuff into our world. Like we don't, all, all the shit that we're all now so shocked at has always been there. We're just seeing it now and like we kind of fetishize it. Like, you know, it's sort of like we were, we were talking about earlier where you just like click into these things over and over again because you want to see what it's all about. It's, it's like, being enabled, it's, it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I think, you know, we're going to figure out how to like better deal with that. Um, and I, I think that, you know, kids who are growing up with it now are going to be much better at it than we were. Um, and, you know, like, I mean, think about like old people, they have no idea what the hell it is. So they see like one thing, they're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, they don't like babies over there or whatever. <laughs> you know, so I think kids, kids who grew up with it, like, it's just going to be like us. Like when we grew up with MTV, like it wasn't this thing to panic about. Um, right, right. There's this cool podcast called The Pessimist Archives. Okay. And it, um, it sort of goes into like all these times where technology advanced and the panics that came around it. And you start to realize like that it's just human nature. Like there was a time where people were like freaking out about elevators, like how <laughs> elevators were going to ruin society or how, how like the Walkman was going to ruin society. So we're always like worried about how we're going to ruin society. And yeah. I think like all of us sort of have that, that like hope that like it's a dark hope, but we're all like, what if we're the last generation? Like how cool and important would we be if that was us? And I think we like to project that into the world. I know I do. Yeah, nowadays I'm opting out of everything. The world is just an opera house with tragedies and petty kings. Knock them out the box. Democracy's now a mockery. It's Machiavelli, Fox News, R. Kelly, and Akinelli. Blame the system like the people are the victims. Yeah, we ignore the symptoms. Talk the people are the sickness. I'm on that ancient Sith, Agent Smith, and Skynet. Which one equals violence? Is it words or is it silence? I demolish from these concepts. Necessary lampoons. My Messiah complex. The patrons say the damn fool. I'm interested as to how much of your podcast extends an influence to what you talk about how much of the dialogue you're having on call out culture seeps into making and being inspired behind writing a song hmm. i don't think much of it does honestly subconsciously um, maybe subconsciously but right. I, I also think it's you know like the the personalities that we all bring to call out culture are kind of like genuinely us and yeah. i think that's the same thing in the music so i i think there's you know really more what you're seeing is what we're bringing to each thing versus what the other thing is bringing to, yeah, like what the music is bringing to the podcast or what the podcast is bringing to the music. So I, I think it's a very symbiotic relationship and it's all kind of the same. Yo, I'm eating cherry, spitting pizza to the coffee mug. Muggsy Bogues jersey, if it's Earth Day, then I'm off in bugs. Fuck your ecosystem, I'm ColecoVision and conditions. Air Hirachi, Akanaki, lovers rock apocalypse. Kiss me, deadly leader for it. Keys, open doors. Got the keystroke software for your coffins and meet the door. Me so horny, bumping out the window with my parents whip. 88 junior year, trying to make them parents out. Now I'm just a parent, got my kid checking paraffin. Wandering around this Miss Fidel for my parents trip. Looking for some vomit. Become like a small little community uh, of artists that all kind of like work out and hang out together. Um, and, you know, we're on each other's stuff all the time. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because the majority of people like haven't really ever hung out with in person. Like I, I've hung out with Zilla Rock in person twice. Wow. Um, I've never met Jason Griffin in person. I've never met Alex in person. Is that because of COVID? A couple of times. 
No, I mean, well, like Alex, Alex is in Nashville, I think. And right. Griff is in Chicago. Um, Zilla, he's in Philadelphia, and I've met him a few times. Um, Castro, also in Philadelphia, and it's just like our times to like hang out have never lined up. And then, of course, COVID hit. But, um, you know, so a lot of those dudes, like, we just know each other through like creating music together and like hanging out that way. Um, but there's, you know, there, there's an energy there that's really cool. Like that I remember from being young, like finding like-minded people to work with, uh, always like helps you step up your game and bring out your best because you, you start, like, I, I think the energy that that's here is energy that was very similar at the beginning and then was lost and refound. Um, so like when Adam's family got together, we started doing stuff because, it made each other happy. Like I like doing a verse because Vortal would freak out and Vortal like doing a verse because cryptic would like lose his mind about how good it was. Mm. Um, and th- there's a similar energy going on now with like the projects that we're doing. Like, you know, when I hear Zilla's, Zilla's new record or Prem's new record or Castro's new record, which is coming out soon, mm. it's really like that cool energy. Like, Oh my God, these guys are doing that. Like now I need to like step up and try to like impress them. So you're, when you're creating, you have that Im- a bit in your mind of like, I want to blow their minds. Yeah, yeah. Which is counter counterintuitive to what I said earlier about just making music for myself. But absolutely, and you always do it yeah. on your terms, and you do it without um, depending on internet perception. There's a lot of people yeah. out there lost, you know, and who depend on internet validation for self-esteem. Yeah, I had gone through that though. Like I've already done that, you know. Like, and I learned that it's not really a way to to be effectively creative or like really like healthy for your, for your own mental health, like focusing on that. Um, but I had to learn the hard way. And I think a lot of people right. have to learn the hard way. When did you learn that? Uh, after Hangar 18, like when we first like joined Hangar 18, like, or not joined, but like when we first like signed to jokes, like that was our mindset was like, let's like destroy everything. Like we're going to kill it. Mm. Um, and the first record, I think that showed in the first record. And then, you know, we spent the next four years on the road, touring doing like tons of shows with different groups different tours with like different types of artists and when we were touring like you know we're starting to see like what's working for other people like what's pulling crowds what's getting that excited and we started focusing more on that and instead of like actually making a music an album that we wanted to make that was like something that we had to make we were like let's make an album to get this audience and this audience and this audience and this audience and it was really sort of like a hollow record, and it was the thing that destroyed the group. Think big, live without limitation. Get it, go, go, get it. Cause you know you need it, baby. That's that shit. Think big, live without limitation. Get it, go, go, get it. Cause you know you need it, baby. That's that shit. I got a handful of stops, so I do whatever. Make my moves and pursue my pleasure. I know, cause the proof is in the. Put in what you think will achieve the treasure. Take time out the home you craft. Think bigger than your mom and dad. Stand tall with the best intentions. Celebrate life and impress my senses. All that with a glass of gin. Make songs in a classic sense. Pull on a beat and a stack of pens. I got so much sound, you gotta mash it in. Oh my, I'm so excited. At first I overstrided. I tend to think in sizes a little big. I guess I'm on some fly shit. You've been vocal about being a father uh, within recent years. How do you think fatherhood has held a mirror to the experience of making this project? Um... I don't know. Um, I mean, I think one thing is it's, it's made me more like, uh, efficient and prolific, um, which is odd because you think you would have less time, but when you have less time, you actually have to, yeah. you can't procrastinate anymore. You got to actually just do things. 
Um, you know, I, th I think it's just kind of allowing yourself to grow. Like one thing about fatherhood is um, you stop being so centered upon yourself. You know, like you're, you're no longer like your primary concern anymore. You're like third or fourth on the list because, you know, you want to make sure that everyone else is good and everything else is taken care of. Um, and you learn to like kind of not be selfish like that anymore. So I think I think that helps when you're you're being creative because it allows you to be a little more free uh, and you're not like self-conscious about things anymore. So you joined Atoms Family in the mid 90s through this open mic scene culture, of course, back then. What was that yeah. like? What was that time like? It was cool, man. It was like, um, you know, we were all really young um, and it was you know, it was just basically like being a bunch of weirdos on little islands by yourself. And then finding this place called the New Eurekan Poets Cafe where it was all the weirdos. You know what I mean? So it's like you sort of found like your people, the people that thought about music the same way you thought about music, wanted to write the same way you wanted to write, like were really focused on being like staunch individuals. Um, so there was like just this cool energy of discovery, like, of not being alone and somewhat being validated. You know what I mean? Like the people that you look up to and you admire in a scene are suddenly like looking at you the same way. So you're like, Oh, if they like me, then I must have some value. And you just start like building your self-esteem as an artist that way. Um, and then, you know, you kind of see it happening all over the country at the same time. Like you had good life that was popping off. Like you had like living legends, like, you know, that whole thing was popping off. You had rhyme sayers in the Midwest, you had weightless in, in Ohio. Like, you know, it was just like all over the country, like these little pockets were popping up of like-minded people. And it, it felt like something like was moving towards a critical mass. And it was really exciting to be part of that. And like that energy of just like being able to go places and, and make music and, and make a living off of doing music was really cool for a while. And then it kind of stopped being cool after a while. But, um, you know, it really, I, I, I thought it was really eye-opening and cool. And, you know, I always recommend people go for it, especially when they're young. Like, just if it's something you think you want to do, like, jump in and try to create a world for yourself like that. Absolutely. And what about Cannibal Locks, who play a major component in your story, of course? When did you first meet Cannibal yeah. Locks? Can you recall that day? Where was that? Yeah, it was, I mean, I, I first met... Um, I met Vast much later on, but I've met Bortle. Um, it was like an event at the New York and Poets Cafe. Like they used to have these open mics um, where it was like 10 rappers, 10 slam poets. And afterwards there'd be like these huge ciphers outside that would go to like five in the morning. Um, and I remember meeting like this dude who was like, had a shower cap on and was just like kicking the craziest rhymes I ever heard. Mm -hmm. And we were all ciphering together. And he was like, yo, you guys want to be an Adams family. And we were like, cool, because at the time it was just like me and Wind and Breeze, and we didn't really have a crew or anything. Um, we were just sort of like on our own. Like we were cool, like Yishwada uh, Poet and Sire and those guys, but they were like already their own established crew. Um, so, you know, he invited us to be down, and we were like, yeah, let's do it. And I was supposed to meet him and Bortle at the subway station on West 4th. And they were like three hours late. I was like, just about ready to leave, because I was like, fuck these dudes. And then they showed up and like, you know, basically, like, we became, like, instant friends. Amazing. Um, and then, like, you know, Bortle and I were in a group together for a long time before um, Hangar 18 or, um, well, actually, in between, like, Hangar 18 was on hiatus because Wynn was at college and I was home. Right. Um, 
and it was before Cannibal Ox happened. Like Vass used to live upstate at the time. Um, so like Vortal and I were in a group and then it was just, you what know, was that sort group? of group. What was that group? man? <laughs> we had like numerous names. I think the two that I really remember, like formless metamorphics. Oh shit. Dope. Saga Tetsuo. But it was like basically these like, you know, five minute songs that were two verses, no choruses, <laughs> just Dope. like a lot of rapping. But, um, like, I don't know if you know, gang, I... uh, ETP gang from Twitter. I'm, I'm not familiar. Okay, like he was he was like part of like that circle as well. Nice. Um yeah, so it was like, you know, just like all these dudes that are still like around. Like everybody kinda of always keeps popping back up. But um yeah, so we were doing that for a while and then like uh Vass moved down to the city and it was like him and Vortal grew up together, so they always had a real cool chemistry. And I remember like one day just being like, Yeah, it should be a group and they were both like, Nah. And then they met L and L was like, You guys should be a group and they're like, Yeah, let's be a group. <laughs> so it was um it was just you know, it was cool to see that and be yeah. around that because at that time, like everybody's style was starting to change a little bit. Like we were getting better at the craft right. and, um, you know, sort of like understanding like how to make songs a little bit more and, you know, how to, how to really use our words a little more effectively. So like seeing those guys do that, like that also gave the rest of us the confidence to be like, Oh, this can be done. Like, you know, it could be done in a way that's bigger than what we were all thinking originally. So you know, that was, it was super cool being around that. And then being around that allowed, you know, us to meet up with other people that we weren't necessarily around in the beginning, like, you know, getting to know L, getting to know Ace and Block and all those guys, which was really cool. And then like, you know, getting to know RJ and Murs and, and dudes like that. Um, so it was like, it just sort of opened the world up a little bit more. <laughs> Yeah, well, speaking of opening your world up a bit more, you're involved with a very special project, seeing that album come to shape and take form, called Vein. Yes. What are your earliest memories of being a part of that project with, of course, Atom and seeing that album come together in full motion, being as close as you were to Vast and Vordor? Yeah, I mean, at that time, it was like, um, it was weird, like, Vordor sort of became more isolated at that time. So like he was, you know, he was sort of more hanging out with his family and Vass and I got real close and we were hanging out a lot. So Vass would always bring over like the demos and stuff like that. Um, and I was just like blown away. I was like, holy crap, this shit is so good. Um, like it wasn't like anything I expect. Like, I don't think that record could have ever happened if there was just one element that was different. You know, it had to be L and it had to be Vast and it had to be Bortle. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I just remember like sort of like going in like we were in like Central Park and they opened for Black Star which was like just crazy to see like Legendary. these dudes that we were just like, yeah, it was like a huge like show. It was like, I don't know if you ever see like any documentaries where it's like, there's like a footage of like most deaf freestyling in a cypher. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's like, you know, I think like pumpkin heads there and a few other dudes that like, that's all at that show. That was like the huge cypher at the end of the show. So that's that show. Um, yeah, that's that show. That was like after the show, everybody was hanging out and rapping in the park. Um, but it was like, it was crazy to see like that growth. And then, you know, they called me and cryptic and were like, yo, come through. We're doing this song right now. So, you know, it was, it was interesting to be there. Like, you know, I was still like in awe of Al at that time. I didn't really know him, but he was a huge influence. Um, so it was like, 
the pressure was on and I always felt like my verse wasn't good on that, but people still like it. Um, I've grown to appreciate it, but at the time I was like, oh man, there's like a weird part in there. And like, I got super like, like paying too much attention to like the flaw instead of everything else that was good. Um, but you know, it's cool. Like it set a foundation that still is going today. Together, congested on a majestic street corner. That's a short time goal for most of them, cause most of them would rather expand their wings and hover over greater things. That's what we call inspired flight by the pigeons that gotta eat pizza crust every night. And let there be light was understood. When a mic stand What about working with Def Chucks? Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, that was I mean that was like by then it was like we were, you know, we were in the circle, everybody was friends with each other. Um and L had like this two-story house out in Brooklyn that was just like sort of rap central where like everybody who was involved would just be popping in and out of there all the time so like you know you didn't know if you'd show up and you'd see like Cage, Camus, Mr. Liff, Murs, um, you know just like anybody out there like NASA would be out there because um, he was he was engineering stuff right um, you know Bass and Bortle whoever like just people were coming in and out of there and it was like it was kind of it's kind of like what I imagine like early like punk stuff was in the eighties where it's just like, you don't even realize what's going on until afterwards. Mm. Um, Cause you're just kind of hanging out and being friends. But um, you know, like the, the cool thing about being part of jokes is it enabled all of us to get a bigger profile um, because like, you know, one of us doing a show at a big venue wouldn't fill it up, but all of us doing a show at a big venue at that time would bring like a thousand people, you know? Without so it was question. like, yeah, so it, it was kind of like a cool movement to see like, all right, people are digging this and, you know, we can, we're bigger than our little circle and like we're bigger than anything we ever thought. Like, I don't think any of us, well, I guess some of us did, but like, I, I never went into this thinking like I was going to do this professionally. Um, I was just like, I like rapping. And then things started happening where I was like, oh, I can do that. All right, I'm going to try that. Oh, I could go on tour. All right, I'm going to try that. Oh, I could put a record out that's going to be in like every chain store in the country. Cool, I'm going to try that. So it really was just like opportunities presented themselves. And that was kind of like the cool thing about being in jokes at that time. It's, it's crazy to reflect on, man. Do you ever pause and think back about your legacy? Um, I try not to. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, sometimes I do. Like, it's more like when I'm talking to people. Um, and then you, you sort of realize like, wow, like the things that I did, like not a lot of people got a chance to do that. Um, you know, it didn't really, you know, when you think of like what traditional success is like being rich, um, you know, having, having homes or, you know, a, a, a huge career, like it didn't really bring any of that, but what it did bring was like a sense of comfort and knowledge of like, I tried to do the thing I wanted to do. Yeah. I got to do the thing I wanted to do for a while. And it impacted people. Like, it's cool. Like when there's like artists that I like now that I'm like, Oh my God, that kid's dope. Like that dude, um, LU, uh, love Ulysses. Right. 
like I found him because he like found a cryptic beat that he loved and was like freestyling on it. Dope. And I was like, oh shit. And then he was like, yo, you on this record, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, it's kind of cool on that front to be like, to see that there are people that are influenced by that. Yeah. Because, you know, at, at the time you would see, like, I would remember like walking, like I was still working a day job back then, but I remember like walking to work and like having dudes like run up on me and be like, yo, you know, we saw you at the show, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that doesn't happen anymore. You know what I mean? Like everybody's old now. I think if most people saw me on the street, they wouldn't even know who I was. But it's cool to like see that people talk about that. Or like every now and again, like when people start talking about Colvane, they'll be like, yo, Alaska's verse is the craziest. Yeah. Um, you know, you see it pop up on Twitter and you're like, oh, that's dope. You know, it's like, it's, it's kind of like, it lets you know, like you've made some impact. One, two. First time ever. It's time to drop a topic from his bucket list I don't really fuck with woke kids and the governments Everything's been muddied, I'm a fatter buddy Holly Glasses and a cardigan, darn Adams curmudgeon probably Since I remember I've been living in the last days Gary Kasparov and Cassius Clays, we castaways Overall spray painted Averex, bathing apes Used to rock your bows with my Jordans back in 88 Riding shotgun and Ronaldi's Fiero Girlfriend had a Brazilian jaw, Bolsonaro Now I like that Kate Bush I had to change my focus, dude. Went from focus groups to folk music and these spoken truths. No There's a few references on this album, of course, between Fuji's to Mob Deep to CNN and, mm-hmm. you know, everything between. I love that CNN flip with the hook. Yeah, yeah. That that was a weird moment of, like, inspiration because the hook that I had before that was really bad. And I was like, I got to do something. And I just had been listening to CNN a lot. And I was like, oh, let me try this. Because, like, the drum pattern, it worked with the drum pattern. I just started, like, singing, like, the CNN hook. And I was like, wait, can I flip this? And, and I did that. And Zilla does that a lot, you know? Like, so, like, I picked that up from Zilla, like, True. where you're like, let me just, like, repurpose this whole hook and do that that way. So if the world stopped turning, I go back in time and make the world turn again. Because we living in the end, try to succeed. Live by our means, contemplate it. Real threat, be exterminated. So if the world stopped turning, I go back in time and make the world turn again. Cause we living in the end, try to succeed. Live by our means, contemplate it, dedicated. Real threat, be exterminated. Between lasers and the view neighbors, autopsy, disguised as newspapers, clone people, rework morph men, late night infiltrated, stolen organs. Well, I mean, you know, everybody's just dropped solo stuff. Um, and Castro's about to drop his solo record, uh, I think on the 23rd. And it's, you know, it's really good. It's, I think it's the best record I've heard in a good decade. Wow. Like, honestly, I'm not, and I'm not saying that to like, because I'm not saying that about my record not saying anything about Zilla's record, but this record is like, when I heard it, I was like blown away. Um, you know, I had a, a similar feeling to like when I heard Ox for the first time when I heard it. Or like, um, I don't know if you ever heard Dark City by Jest yeah. from Adam's Family. Yeah, yeah. Like that, like it was that sort of like, oh wow, this is like a complete world that's been created here. Um, right. So like that's happening. There's a new Wrecking Crew album in the works. Um, Zilla and I have like started formulating some stuff for the next cargo cult record um 
but you know, this just, it's just constantly working, you know, trying to make stuff happen. I want to do a call out culture EP where it's just the three of us, but we got to find like, we want to do it where we find one producer to work the whole thing. Just go from there. Yeah. Is that likely to become a reality? Do you think anytime soon? I don't think anytime soon, but I think, you know, hopefully within like a year or so we could, we could get it going. Just everybody has a lot going on right now. Um, you know, I think it would be something we would just work on as like we had time. But I would definitely be down for that. And I think we all would. It's just we got to prioritize it. There's a lot to be said about this album cover, man. Uh, there's a lot of layers yeah. within this artwork. Were you and Jason both as hands-on with the artist as far as collaborating with this idea? I, yeah, I mean, it was it was an idea that we came up with before going to um, any of the artists. So we spoke to a few different artists. Um, and then just Captain Watts has a history with that label. So, you know, he did, he did like the... Um, which one, the Midnight Express record and like all the singles around that. Dope. And he's just dope. So it was like, you know, here's our idea. Like, can, can we freak this? And like, you know, he, he pulled it off. Like I, you know, in an ideal world, if like we can make this giant like box set version of it, I would want it to keep pulling out further and further and further. Like, you know, so each layer is like somebody else looking in on everything else, but obviously you can't really do that with like digital space. For all Fly Fidelity listeners, I got this special deal for you. If you purchase a copy of Human Zoo from insubordinaterecords.com and you show me a picture of your receipt on Twitter, my Twitter account is Alaska underscore Adams, I will send you my entire discography digitally. Um, so that's everything that I've done that I at least have control of, like some stuff I don't have control of. So I can't really send you that. Like I can't say anything can off record. I don't have control of that. But anything that I've done, I will send to you. Um, so mention that you heard it on the Fly Fidelity podcast. Show me a receipt of your purchase from Bandcamp, and then hit me up on at Twitter. And my Twitter handle again is Alaska underscore Adams. So A L A S K A underscore a-t-o-m-s uh so yeah do that you get like 10 albums for the price of one um cool i hope you hope you take advantage of it i hope you enjoy it and uh let's connect i wish i could show my appreciation for this podcast i wish i could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when fly fidelity updates because it's so great but i don't think there's a way i can do any of those things Uh oh you're wrong Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My peoples, are you with me where you at?